I was in 10th grade. One afternoon, my mother caught me red-handed. I could not hide this big fat medical book thicker than a Bible that my friend had loaned me. I was at Holy Angel School in Chennai and at that moment I did not feel like an angel at all. I was caught staring at the mysteries of the male body and sexual reproduction laid out in a medical book. My mother looked at me in silent disgust or disapproval. Thank God it was not porn. Actually back then I didn't even know that porn existed. This is Deepa Narayan, social science researcher and host of What's a Man podcast, a research-based podcast in which I explore masculinity based on interviews with over 200 educated middle and upper class boys and men in Delhi, Mumbai and other cities as well. My goal is simple. to open up the conversation about men and masculinity in a non-judgmental way with compassion and deep listening engage with us subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform spotify apple hubhopper in the previous episode we uncovered how men's bodies have become a thing packaged and commodified just like women's bodies If talking about men's body is forbidden, talking about sex and male sexuality in a real way is even more forbidden. In this episode, I explore male sexualities. In the land of Kama Sutra, men today are more associated with sexual violence than with being great lovers. What happened? Who teaches boys today about sex and sexual pleasure? Is it true that men are sexual studs who always want sex? Do men want touch and cuddling? Are they sexually confident? Are they great lovers? Let's explore male sexuality, the myths, the lies and some of the truths. This episode is in two parts. We first hear the patterns of responses from some of the 200 boys and men we interviewed, and in segment 2, my first guest is Parumita Vora, the founder of the wonderful and intriguing Agents of Ishq. And my second guest is Dilip Tahil, a veteran Bollywood actor. We asked youth and young men who attended some of the finest schools if they had received any education from their parents about their bodies when they hit puberty, which starts around eleven. Uh, my parents didn't educate me. I mean, I've had talks with my parents sometimes. Uh, not really, to be honest. No. So these are uh, taboo topics. Like they have never been discussed in my family about sex or you know. things like what happened in puberty no not at all my dad had one really awkward interaction in the middle where he just i was like it was 6 a.m. i just woke up because we yeah. school used to start at 7 a.m. and yeah. he just came and he told me that you should like wash your foreskin and i was like i was so shocked i was like whoa like i can't believe you're talking to me about this but yeah besides that nothing else not even one Then you hit puberty. Was there any conversation in your family, either with your mother or father, or any, no. any, no, any education? Not at all. 
I don't think my parents are very big hypocrites, but I think this was just a subject that they were uncomfortable with. Nothing in the family at all, um, like any Indian family. This body silence is a testament to the power of culture. Every boy has a body, yet generation after generation, parents repeat the silence they experienced. They continue to pretend that boys don't have bodies. Obviously, when boys rate their knowledge about their own body at puberty, they get failing grades. This affects their chances of developing healthy sexuality and love relationships. We asked, on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate your knowledge about your body during puberty? One being, I don't know anything, and ten being, I know a lot. Two, three, around three, 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 a three, two point five. During puberty, I guess four, three or four. Yeah, initial, I, I would probably, if I were to give a minus rating, I would probably give it a minus rating. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, like we are literally not informed at all. So, mm-hmm. studies show that most boys find out about sex quite early, between the ages of eleven to thirteen years. Yeah, how old were you when you first found out about sex, and how did you find out? It's very, very weird. Okay, um, I remember second standard when I first started masturbating, and I didn't even know it was called that. I randomly discovered I was lying on the bed. At start, I started rubbing my penis. It just felt good, and I was like, "Okay, wow, this feels good. Let's do this again." And I think it was in sixth standard that I got to know after four years after that that this is called masturbation. This is an activity human beings do. The deep pretense within families forces boys to take their search outside to learn about their own bodily changes and sexuality. We asked youth and men, "How did you learn about sex?" A lot from friends, the internet, majorly from TV shows and movies. Ha, porn. <laughs> yeah, that that that's probably was the first kind of uh, sex education which we get. Main thing I got was from either porn or other boys around me who also learned the same things from porn. I used to Google porn so that I could compare my body to there and see if my body was like looking normal. The sex workshops and sex education uh, classes that schools give in seventh or eighth grade. But as a guy, I was introduced to porn and the concept of sex at, at uh, definitely a more younger age. So. Probably in sixth grade. Most boys learn about sex from other wide-eyed boys or from teen experts. Porn and TV become the other great educators. Parental surrender on sexuality education has a terrible impact on young children and teens. We're clinging to a Victorian Christian belief system that separates the sinful body from the pure mind. This shame-soaked silence around sex enables sexual abuse of young boys within extended family networks of uncles and acquaintances. But we don't want to know. I might as well give you all the bad news at once. India is one of the biggest contributors and consumers of child porn in the world, and this doubled during the pandemic despite a ban on porn. And Kerala, the human development miracle, ranks number one in uploading child porn. In the total silence about sex, porn and stories from swaggering, lying, hormone-exploding teens create sexual anxieties amongst boys. 
and most immediately about the penis. I generally do not like the look or thought or image of male genitalia. When I used to watch those porn videos and everything, see these American dudes or European dudes, the size of their penis. So I was always worried that is there a problem with me? Like my dick's not growing or something like that. Mm-hmm. And later I came to know that these people's size, Asian people's size, they actually differ. Normal sexual desire becomes twisted into grotesque sexual power. It pushes boys to claim conquest over girls. It starts with innocent sounding boasts. We hear so often that we dismiss them. We don't recognize them as the roots of dehumanization of boys as sexual studs and girls as sexual trophies. Kind of. When you are a teenager, you kind of boast about like how many girlfriends you had and stuff like that. You know, somebody who had more girlfriends used to be like the the hip kind of guy. You would be seen a little low if you don't have a girlfriend or something like that. People make fun of you and stuff like that. Boys and girls, they do talk about their sexual encounters, probably with their friends. But now I try not to boast about it. The pressure to have sex leads many to early and unprotected sex and seals the male role as the seed sower. Of course, no family had educated boys about girls' bodies. To score a girlfriend or to have a girlfriend and to look at it from a point of view of scoring a girlfriend. Like, you know, I have a girlfriend and everyone wanted to, like, show off. Boys used to talk about conquests as such that, okay, describing female body parts. I felt that when I was starting college, there was this unsaid pressure, like, people would talk about their intimate encounters and intimate details. And the way they talked about it, it made them so happy and confident about it. Where there is power, there's no need for consent. When sex becomes framed as conquest, power reigns and love goes out of sexual encounters. Boys' locker room incidents are inevitable. We should be concerned. India has 243 million adolescents, approximately 21% of the population. Millions of conquering heroes, whether they want to or not, and they reproduce the lopsided power of the patriarchy. This leeching out of love from sex, together with its shady beginnings, dark, dirty, hidden, makes it difficult for some men to fuse love and sex again as adults. It leaves men confused and uncertain about their own sexuality. We asked men to rate their sexual confidence now. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate yourself as a sexy guy? Again, because of my relationship, it gives a lot of confidence when you've been dating for so long and having sex for so long. Uh, Three? (laughs) Four? It's all meaningless. I'm I'm not even trying to be good at it. It's just happening. I'm happy. I'm I'm confident is low right now. But yeah, three, four. I'm not that confident right now. The reason I'm not that confident is because I never wanted to go all the way with a girl, like somehow inside. Because I was always like, you know, not scared, but I don't know what what uh, repercussions it will have later on. Because you've gone all the way now. Like before that, it's chill. Before that, I don't think anybody cares. If you go all the way, then things start getting a bit complicated. What's a man? Masculinity Podcast in India by Deepa Narayan.
Our partners are Hubhopper, the gender lab who work with adolescent boys and girls on gender awareness, Chup Circles, safe spaces for conversation, and Youth Ki Awaaz, the largest online platform for youth voices. This podcast is supported by the American Center New Delhi. The opinions presented in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the American Center or the US government. To explore these topics further, I now turn to our very special guest, Paromita Vora. Paromita is a filmmaker, writer, whose work focuses on gender, feminism, love, desire. Her creativity knows no bounds. She's the founder of Agents of Ishq, a multimedia project about sex, love and desire. Hello, Paramita. So delighted to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Let me first ask about the title, Agents of Ishq. Such a wonderful title. Thank you. Thank you. And in fact, there's a funny story about the title. It should be like where people come for everything, like a kind of sex headquarters. And then it was like, <laughs> oh, so it would be like Indian sex headquarters. That's Ishq. So that's a clever acronym. And then somebody said, oh, and then everybody will be like, you know, little agents running around and I'm like oh actually we should be agents of Ish if we're always talking about sexuality as a concept but never sex as an experience in a granular fashion we'll never ever really get to the heart of the issues and so that's really how Agents of Ish started plus I also realized when I began the project there was nothing which was rooted in Indian context Everything was being taken from American or European. Right, right. I love the fact that the images are Indian Mm -hmm. too. It's Indian people and not just images brought out from the commons, all white. The reason why so much of it is hand-drawn, because then we could create images that are positive, that are enabling of, you know, fat women, naked bodies, brown bodies, or trans bodies, all kinds of bodies, represented not as examples of their type, but just as bodies. Exactly. I love your tagline. We give sex a good name. Yes. <laughs> Can you talk about that? Beautiful. Thank you. So it's a play on an old Bon Jovi song, You Give Love a Bad Name, right? So, which was very popular when I was young. So it's also a play on that, that, that there's a lot of shame attached to talking about sex and the idea of sex. So just to say that, that if the problem is that if sex is such a big problem, then if, then poor sex needs to get like some good credit. Why do you think we've gone from seeing sex as an essence of life to such shame around sex and sexual desire? We know that to some extent sex has become a matter of shame and also uh, puritanism in India as a kind of result of colonial ideas and colonial laws. So Victorian mindsets, which determined that the lives of people as they were being led here were somehow indecent or not not civilized, let's say. So we know that in the 19th century, there were several things that the British colonizers did, like, you know, acts which forbade same-sex relationships, criminalized same-sex relationships, and also the anti-notch girl movement, so the courtesanal spaces, all the performances that were in the erotic kind of space, all of it kind of got outlawed. And I guess in the education and the colonization of our minds to the idea that many things that are Indian, whatever that means, because the term Indian represents a thousand million ways of being. So 
but this idea that somehow it's it's an uncivilized way of being because it's not like the colonizers way of being which is a kind of christian puritanical idea of intimate life and there's a lot of division of the body and the mind which got created yeah so i think a hierarchy has developed over time between body and mind where the mind is supposed to be superior and the body is somehow a matter of inferiority and of course in india when it intersects with ideas of caste and purity that becomes i think a little bit more deadly but it also has created a hierarchy between love and sex so the idea that love is something pure and at a superior plane so these dichotomies are essentially rooted in a shame around sexual desire right sex as dirty so sex as dirty is sex as inside marriage and sex is something shameful yeah. which is for reproduction sex for and pleasure so that, i mean it's going to create a right. lot of conflict right yeah, absolutely very complicated and comes in the way of pleasure yeah, yeah. Sex, and sexual desire and, and yeah. mental health which we are seeing the result of now around us What kind of questions do you usually get from men paramita and agents of ishq any stories the kind of question that comes in a lot is really about emotionality and about relationships the questions about sexual etiquette about what is right and wrong questions of consent a lot of women is feeling demeaned and hurt by certain behavior as if they are unimportant a lot of uncertainty around the world of dating So I think like I'll broadly call it a non-consensual world by which I don't necessarily mean that sexual violence is happening although it is occurring in varying degrees one can see that but a lot of it being that people don't easily feel that they can ask for what they want so is this that men are going to sexual power moved from sexual desire to sexual power and so it's playing out in sex as well there is a kind of a big hangover of the idea that men get to decide everything about sex and that idealized sex life is a life of powerful men which is that you should you know fuck a lot and many people so there is this kind of a definition which is oppressive also to men what surprises you the most the kinds of questions that come from men are i would say a bit different like how can i have sex is a very big question that men are asking actually so what are your responses <laughs> i want to i do in response to many of the questions we started a sexual etiquette column right give me examples yeah, yeah. So give me examples we cannot tell people how they can have sex right but sometimes they're asking a question like i really want to have casual sex like how can i convince someone to do it with me we could look at this question judgmentally but if you look at it empathetically and you think that somebody is young and they would like to have sex and they live in a culture where many people consider it offensive there is also a gendered context in which women are continuously feeling disrespected by men so they are going to get annoyed and so this this particular question we we wrote say there's nothing wrong with wanting to have casual sex but don't think that just because you want to have casual sex the other person has to have it with you you can make an overture to with some amount of grace and wit and if the other person turns you down if they turn you down in a rude way you may feel hurt and that's not nice of them to do but they have still turned you down and if they turn you down nicely accept it don't fight it you'll find somebody else you know but most of all don't feel that what you want is wrong we are very careful to not stigmatize sex at any point 
and to not stigmatize people's personal sexual preferences at any point, but at the same time to weave in the idea of consent into the everyday behavior between people. So the thing is that don't stigmatize the desire. Understand that people have desires and they have not had a language of desire. Put out some information that could help people understand that good manners goes a long way in how you interact around sex just as much as any other part of life, right? So it becomes normal. Right, right. Normal, yeah. That's a wonderful expression, have good manners around sex. But I think, I think <laughs> it's interesting, right, that people, yeah. because sex is always an exception. Sex is always put in a separate section. We never, we never talk about sex as part of life. It's some different category. It's hidden. It's shadowy. The whole business of reintegrating sex into our lives and conversations to say that there is a learning from sex inside sex. So how do we reintegrate all of this? And by doing that, reintegrate our own selves, which are currently fragmented in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful way of putting it. Integration is key and that we don't, because we don't think of sex as normal, mm-hmm. we don't think of bringing other parts of our life and the etiquette to the way we behave in other parts of our life. Beautiful. What are the most common sexual anxieties you think men are facing nowadays, Paramita? And how much of it do you think is related to the pressure of being a sexual stud? Indonesia has a large number of user-generated pieces on the website where people contribute narratives of their sexual experiences. And we received a lot of narratives from women and queer men. But we should never receive any narratives from straight men. That's actually not surprising as men are more afraid to expose their ignorance, make themselves vulnerable. Agents of Ish did an interesting survey of Indian men that focuses on penises. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So around a few months into this, we thought, let's do a survey with men. And we did something called the Great Indian Penis Survey. And we asked men (laughs) questions. (laughs) We asked them about their relationship with their penis. We thought, you know, maybe like 50, 60 people will answer the survey. 1,100 men answered that survey online. What emerged from that survey was, I think, very important. And I think it revealed that... So many of these conversations about how, you know, men are homophobic about their bodies and so on are taken from American experiences. They don't really seem to be operational, at least for the men who answered our survey. There's a far more easygoing relationship with the body, although there are complexes. There is self-doubt, all that is there. Another correlation which we found was that men who had a, a relaxed relationship, not a shameful relationship with the body and with sex, also had quite positive sex lives. So we don't know whether it's the positive sex life that made them feel positive about their bodies or the other way around. So this this kind of uh, lot of uh, tension around erectile dysfunction and size wasn't as bad as we had imagined it would be in the responses. Of course, there was also playfulness and tenderness, right? There was like one person said, <laughs> called his penis Sachin Tendulkar. Who's you know great batsman in India and uh, other somebody who calls his penis Shahrukh Khan. I just thought like okay that's quite playful. So I think even for us it opens out a new way of thinking away from the stereotypes because men are very performative of masculinity in a very much more aggressive way than women are performative of femininity. I think and I think what began to happen it took time. 
is that slowly yeah. we began to get narratives from men, heterosexual men especially, have no language to discuss intimacy. No language to discuss intimacy. Yeah. They don't have much language to discuss emotionality. This emerges over and over again. Paramita, based on your work, what do you think are the most common myths and lies that men carry about their own sexuality? I think that the myths about male bodies are that way pretty classic in that a lot of ideas are received from pornography. So one of the sex educators that we had interviewed in a series we called Gyan from Yogaini had said how men would come in and say, I can't keep it up, up for more than eight minutes and so what's wrong with me and the doctor would be like there is nothing wrong with you but because they had watched porn in which like for 40 minutes somebody's at it I think men to have slightly somewhat negative body image from what they see in porn and uh, that affects how they look at uh, themselves the other myth of course is that you are supposed to want sex all the time that everybody's libido is identical this is a terrible myth because everybody's libido is not identical. And so for men who don't feel like having sex, just don't feel like having sex as much as the next person, there is a continuous feeling that I'm not man enough or that you are not man enough if their partner's libido is different. So a conversation about libido, that different people have different libidos and your, your compatibility is based on your acceptance of each other's libidos. There's like the more scene of that conversation, right? So the idea that men always want sex, it pervades the environment and it also affects the way men think about themselves and become despondent. I mean, Dr. Vatsa's column, Ask the Sexpert, there's so many men writing in who basically are suffering from this kind of thing. I want to talk a bit about Dr. Mahendra Vatsa, who passed away recently at age 96. Get this, for 15 years, he wrote a daily sex column in the Mumbai Mirror. He never judged and he responded with humor to people's queries. For example, one agonized teenager asked, will repeated masturbation reduce the size of his organ? He responded, you talk every day. Has your tongue become smaller? Or another 18-year-old who wrote, my testicles are bigger than what I see in the movies. Should I wear testicle support all day? His response, do you watch movies with a ruler in your hand? Why not also measure your ears and other body parts? Paromita also spoke about men's fears that underlie cruel cultural practices to control women's sexuality across cultures. The other uh, thing is that there is a kind of emotional fear that is very prevalent. Do you see this? What if she cheats you? The idea that you will be cheated on and that you will somehow be betrayed if you make yourself vulnerable is quite strong. Like it's an ongoing fear. Paramita explains that the myths about men only wanting sex and not touch was common across the genders, heterosexual and in queer spaces. So the idea that you, you know, it's weird to be like wanting to have love and cuddles and what you're really supposed to do is like chase a lot of sex and it should be disembodied in some way. These questions about being rejected, rejection is a very big issue for men. One that they genuinely face when they come into a space like dating apps, where numerically there are very few women and many more men, and it translates into a kind of anger and resentment. You know, an example of, the extreme example of which is the incel movement abroad, but this feeling that what women think of themselves, or women just swipe right on men, 
uh, in order to laugh at them. There's a lot of difficulty in speaking of it because one, there's no habit of dealing with your emotions. So for heterosexual men, it's really, I don't think it's a crisis. And some are rising to change things for themselves in the crisis. Many are not. In my research, I found that porn has become a, a key educator about sex. How has pornography shaped sex education and men's relationships to sex? I mean, it's entertainment. It's a movie. It's not how real life is. There is a slightly atomized approach to sex. There is a slightly, mm-hmm. like an intimacy deficit and a pleasure deficit because it is seen as a series of activities, positions in this very numerical kind of way. So while people are having a lot more right. sex, the question remains, what is happening inside that sex? Are men willing to talk about it? When women, when women express their unhappiness or dissatisfaction with it, there is a defensiveness or there is a feeling attacked, feeling that comes in. So I think these questions are, they need to be discussed now. Is the total absence of sex education fair to young boys? That, that harshness where you don't look at young people and their needs is reflected in the fact that you don't have sex education in schools. That parents are only interested, especially elite parents, are interested in their children's success, but not necessarily in their children's vulnerabilities. And vulnerability comes in the way of success. Isn't that what we are all taught? So eventually when people yeah. start dating, okay. so I did a workshop with a bunch of young men, and I asked them, what's the most tiring thing about online dating? And one young man said, the effort not to fall in love. So I Oh, why are you? Oh, say it again. You have to make the effort not to fall in love. So I said, oh my God, that sounds very tiring. He said, it is very tiring. The mindset that if you fall in love, you'll be the weaker party. So everybody should be no strings attached. Everybody should be casual. I should break your heart before you break mine. I should leave. I should ghost you before you ghost me. I mean, because the world is all about competition. That's obviously going to enter the intimate space as well, right? Like, why would that be separate? And what education do we have for our personal lives? What is the education that we're receiving and how to be in relationships with other people? Right. So, yes, power and competition, who wins, who loses, enters the sexual arena as well. Could you talk a bit more on the topic of sexual violence? What have you learned? There is no getting away from the simple truth that gender conditioning and caste conditioning strongly influence the way that sexual violence occurs. It's not only women who are being raped, but rape is happening to different kinds of people for different kinds of reasons, but almost always to assert the supremacy of a man or a person of a certain caste. You're close. It's actually 94% of reported rape. And of course, this doesn't include all other forms of sexual touching and molestation. These gender relations are predicated on the idea that women's sexuality should be controlled. And women are non-desiring beings. Men have desire and they cannot help it. And people are supposed to supply whatever they want in that desire. And if they don't, sexual violence is both a way of punishing people as well as asserting power over others. But it's also a way of being uncaring of what other people want and not listening to them. This is such a powerful summarization of sexuality as a weapon of power over women rather than sexual desire as a normal part of all human beings. Putting desiring women and vulnerable men back into the discourse, presenting alternative definitions of gender is very important because it's a counterweight. 
to the conditioning that everybody is yeah. receiving. But I don't think you can change people by scolding them. You have to change the way yeah. we think about ourselves. <laughs> there is a lot of stuff out there which is about, oh, why do Indian men rape? And, oh, there's something wrong with Indian culture. But there is something wrong with every culture, which is patriarchy and racism or casteism. And that, if we don't address it, we cannot address violence. Right. Wow, what a rich conversation. Thank you so much. I learned so much and I just love your work, your thinking and your creativity in filmmaking and breaking boundaries and coming up with your (laughs) own Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you, Paramita. We cannot leave the topic of consent without going to Bollywood because Bollywood has such an impact on our imagination about what is good, bad, what is permissible. Dilip Tahil is a veteran Bollywood actor and theatre artist. He's best known for his roles in Bazigar and Ra Wanj at Shah Rukh Khan and in Bhag Milka Bhag with Farhan Akhtar, many other movies. I spoke to him about the issue of consent in the Bollywood industry. I asked him specifically about a time 25 years ago, long before the Me Too movement, when Dilip Tahil took a stand on behalf of a young unknown actress to ask her for her consent before a rape scene. Yeah, there was one scene in which I was supposed to sort of assault this woman and she turned up and she came on the set, she looked, you know, really young. I mean, I'm sure she was about 20, 22 or something, but she looked really young and she looked like she was new. So what triggered it was that we were supposed to do the scene and the director came to me and sort of sort of moseyed up to me and came and said, it's short, hoga na. So we camera here, so you panties and skirt So I said, what? You lost your mind? What are you talking about? He said, there's problem, I said, listen, I, I'm, firstly, I'm not going to do this thing. Secondly, I'm going to tell her that this is what you want me to do. And I had no doubt in my mind that they hadn't told the girl. No no one would have agreed to it. And because a lot of these girls come to make a living and they need that money. For me, it was like really a sort of a really dirty thing and filthy thing to do. So I went up to her and I told her, I said, look, are you aware that this is what is going to happen in the shot. And she freaked. She started crying. She, you know, she just went into a complete dizzy. And she, and she ran into a room and locked herself. So then the director tells me, he says, see what you've done. I never told you anything of the sort. I don't know what you've gone and said to her, but my artist has gone into the room and she refuses to come out. So you have actually spoiled my shoot. Go to hell. I'll just go and talk to her. So I went to her and I knocked her. She wasn't opening the door for anyone. And I told her, I said, listen, you know, this is what has happened. But I promise you that during the shot, uh, I won't do anything of the sort. If I see the camera coming in, the, in a place where there's going to be exposure, I will cut the shot because I will stop the shot. So it's in my control. I won't do anything. I promise you, come and do to what they've told you. This is what I will do just for to give it an effect of a, of a resolve sequence. And she came out and we did it. In those days, I didn't take consent in the sense that I took later on in the in the web series Hostages. In the industry, is consent now normal? I mean, recording a woman's consent if there's a... I don't a, think a so. Scene, I don't think no, so. No, it still isn't. Yeah, it's right. a very hierarchy kind of thing. If you're a top star, nobody's going to even mess with you. So, you know, it comes from a very dark place. It's cruel. It's cruel. But of course it happens. And of course, 
it's a ruthless industry. I mean, you know, it's it's a hostile place and it's predatory. So, you know, it's uh, it's very tough, and you know, you got to survive. So, Dalip, if you were to give a message to men about consent, what would you say? Tricky part is that at any time that consent may go, may go, it, it may change. There could be a change of heart. That is where I feel it becomes extremely difficult and important. The the no that 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 men have to understand is whether it's your wife or anybody, and that no that comes after perhaps you have gone to a certain stage in the intimacy. Bang! When that no comes, that is the no that people have to recognize, and I'm sure it is extremely difficult. But that is the no we're talking about. Recognizing that consent may change at any time, no matter what the reason, men have to honor the request. Thank you, Dilip, for putting this so clearly. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. The beauty of love and sexualities has been twisted by pretense, power, porn, police and parents. We must stop the pretense. Let's reclaim healthy sexualities and sexual desire as a part of the glory of being human. The starting point of sexuality is education in age-appropriate ways and as Paromita Vora says, in non-judgmental ways. Come join us in breaking open this conversation about sexualities, sexual desire within your family, schools, colleges, workplaces and play spaces. Ask yourself and others this question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your knowledge about healthy sexuality? 1 is no knowledge and 10 is expert knowledge. You are the expert. What is healthy sexuality? In our next episode next week, we talk about emotional literacy of men. Come and listen to what we've learned from our 200 interviews and two special guests, a psychoanalyst and a comedian. This is Deepa Narayan. Join me in a slow conversation. Listen deeply. Share your stories with us and others. Do subscribe to our channel on Hubhopper, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts or wherever you are currently listening. Our website is whatsaman.com. You can reach Dr. Deepa Narayan at DeepaVOP on Twitter and Instagram. This podcast is generously supported by a grant from the American Center, New Delhi. The opinions, findings and conclusions stated are those of what's a man, masculinity in India and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State. Our partners are Hub Hopper, the Gender Lab, who work with adolescent boys and girls on gender awareness, Chup Circles, Safe Spaces for Conversation and Youth Ki Awaz, the largest online platform for youth voices.